Lord, as we open your word, I pray that we would see the connections that we read about in 2 Kings. I pray, Lord, that we would see how they apply to our life today. And Lord, I pray that we would see the urgency of looking at these people in the context in which they lived and seeing the same realities in our own lives and seeing our need. I pray, Lord, I ask that you would strengthen me. I pray that uh, the very thing that I'm seeking to teach others, Lord, would be real in my own heart. I pray, God, that we would all have humble hearts to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. Today we're going to continue where we left off two weeks ago. We started the story of Elisha and Naaman. Naaman the leper. Naaman the general, the commander of the Syrian army. And, and as we get started, the title of the message this morning is The Danger of a Worldly Heart. The Danger of a Worldly Heart. And what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in the narrative where we left off last time. We're going to begin, though, because it's been a couple of weeks to try to just get reacclimated with the story here. Elisha and Naaman. And, and when we look at this story, we read in verse 1, Thing that is so important to see. We read that Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Here was this guy who had everything going for him. He literally, uh, you know, if you thought, okay, like where do you want to be People often say that, you know, when you're in high school or college, where do you want to be by the age of 30? And, um, and what happens is you get, to a, you get to 49, like me, <laughs> well, I'm past 30. Something's going on here. It's, my, it's this uh, cord right here. Okay, there we go. I'm going to try not to move it. If, it. if it makes a noise, it's my fault. Let's just clarify. Let's see. Can you all hear it now? Somebody said yes. Let's go to the handheld today. We're adjusting on the fly here. In his life, and, and you got to think, I mean, if there was any kind of semblance that he wanted to be somewhere at one part of his journey, it would be Naaman would have it all. But it appears from the text that he comes down with leprosy at the moment where everything is clicking, everything is right, and all of a sudden he has this interruption in his life. God brings him to a circumstance he couldn't handle. I wonder today how many of you are thinking, if it just wasn't for this circumstance in my life, everything would be the way I want it to be. And isn't it interesting because God often works in the midst of the life's biggest interruptions. Because God in his providence and his sovereign hand, he works in spite of all the difficulties. And God is working. He is using the supposed interruption in his life to bring about his plan for Naaman, even in the difficulty. 
And what happens is God uses another unlikely person in this story like we've seen in before. There's this little girl from the land of Israel. She had been taken in one of the raids. And you got to think about all the backdrop of what she was facing. She went from being in Israel with her family to now being in the land of Syria and now living in the same household as the commander and his wife. And yet this little girl had more spiritual perception than the king of Israel. And this little girl, God used her. And, and, and by the grace of God, rather than be embittered at God at what had taken place in her life, she becomes the story of an evangelist here. And what she does is she tells the story of how God could intervene in the life of Naaman, and she longed that for him. In verse 3, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Well, what she states here gets to the king. The king sends a message to the king of Israel. And as we keep moving in the storyline, we go all the way down through verse 7. And word reaches the king of Israel. And when he receives this message that he is now basically asking for help from the God of Israel, he wants Israel to come to his aid for the commander of his army. The king of Israel is frustrated. He thinks it's a setup. He's frustrated, and, and he wants... Basically, he's mad. And, and what happens here is that Elisha gets word of this. In verse 8, he heard that the king of Israel had torn, torn his clothes. He sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now, what happens now is really a pivotal point in the story because Naaman at this point is still a very much godless man. And he is offended that Elisha would not even come to the door. And so now, not only is he offended at the way he's being treated as such a powerful commander, he is absolutely astounded at what he hears next. The messenger comes, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And last time we were reminded, isn't it amazing that the, the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing? And when we think about the means of how God works, it's often so clear it's an affront to human wisdom and to human pride. And here, this is, this is offensive to Naaman. But there yet again are some servants that point him in the right direction. And they basically say, look, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he takes their advice. And God was taking this proud commander, and before he could heal him, he had to humble him. And he dips into the Jordan seven times. And you can just imagine the grace of God working and bringing this proud, arrogant commander to a place of humility to being changed by the living God. He dips into the Jordan seven times, and then we read an astonishing account here. In verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, 
and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He was cleansed. But he wasn't just cleansed outwardly. He was cleansed inwardly. There's a cleansing that's going on here that completely changes him. And what he does now, you begin to see in verse 15 the transformation of this commander. He goes from being a proud, arrogant man to being a humble man, one who is grateful, one who is appreciative. And he urges Elisha to receive a gift of his gratitude. And Elisha will not take it. Elisha doesn't want it. I was reading in one place here, and I was blessed by this. And one man said, remember how angry he was when Elisha did not show him proper respect. Once Naaman was converted, his greatest vice became his greatest virtue. When he returned to Elisha, he came in humility. And what you begin to see is now here's a man who is appreciative, whose heart has been cleansed as well as his exterior has been cleansed. And now the disposition of his life is different than it was before. And then what happens? We see that now he has a conscience not only of wanting to repay, not repay, but to be grateful. But Elisha was worried that he would misunderstand what God had done for him if he received his gift. Because he didn't want him to confuse that the money that he had would be that which could purchase God's pardon, God's cleansing. And Elisha was wise. And he realized, no, we're not going to take any payment. I'm not going to receive any money from you. But I want you to see that this is God's free grace and what he's worked in your life. And now Naaman has concerns about how he's going to serve the Lord in a pagan land. And you see these examples already of how God is working within him, giving him a conscience that desires to please God and to walk with God. And that leads us to our part of the story today. As we get moving here in the danger of a worldly heart, there's a surprising turn. If we stopped right here, we would all feel pretty good about this story and just praise God for his cleansing power and just move right into chapter 6. But if you were with me last time, you might have been thinking, but wait a minute, you left off a really important part of the chapter. There's a turn of events here. I want to read you again what Gary read you in the call to worship. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I want you to see what's characteristic of the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but it's from the world. Paul says this in 1 Timothy, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Two passages as we get started, and we'll look at more from the New Testament as we continue. As we look at Gehazi, and we look at his life. Today, five observations about Gehazi as we move through the final part of chapter 5. And when we start here, we're going to look immediately at Gehazi's distortion. Gehazi's distortion. 
when you distort something, it's the idea of giving a misleading account or impression. To give a misleading impression. Gehazi misleads by what he does. Let's read the story together, starting in verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, see, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of prophets of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried him then before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. And he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from the chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive, orchards, and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. We mentioned, I mentioned to you in the review in verse 15 and 16, Elisha wanted to make sure that Naaman did not misunderstand the healing and the cleansing that God had provided. And what seems clear from the text, just like we see Simon in Acts chapter 8, he was seeking to purchase what only God could provide. We find that Elisha understood the danger here. I was reading a, a gentleman named Ralph Davis, and I really believe the way he words this is right on the money. He says, at any rate, Gehazi's greed implied that Yahweh was a taker, like all the other deities that littered the Near East. So Gehazi's offense is no trifle. This explains why his punishment is so severe. It was because Gehazi was undoing what God had done. God wanted Naaman to know his free grace. But Gehazi was trying to put a price on the goodness of God. 
The God of Israel did not accept bribes. He would not be manipulated by money or make room for human pride. His grace was free. Gehazi was implying otherwise, and it would be at great cost to him. In the background of all that is taking place, you see things at work in the heart and in the mind of this servant of Elisha named Gehazi. And what he does in this story is an overview starting out as he distorts a gospel of grace. I want us to think about that. He distorted it by what he did. What he did misled what God had done. Elisha was clear that he did not want in any way to hinder Naaman's understanding of God's free grace. And he would not take any type of gift from Naaman. But then Gehazi distorts, misleads, misguides the entire story of God's free grace. I thought about this. It's like, do do we distort or mislead others with the gospel of Jesus Christ? How might we distort a gospel of grace? How might we distort it in our lives? Gehazi sought to receive money. I was thinking, uh, do you distort the gospel of God's grace in the way that you parent? You may think, what do you mean? Do you put a standard out there in which your child is incapable of achieving, and even as you correct them based on their disobedience, do you show them the goodness of God's grace? Do you show them the goodness of God's work in Christ? It's interesting. Do do you distort a gospel of grace in the way that you fail to show grace to others who hurt you? People that know Christians they hear of this message of God's free grace in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But how many times have we distorted the way God's grace is seen and observed by others? Because they see believers who will talk about the forgiveness they've experienced and yet not see forgiveness active within their life. We see it here evident with Gehazi in the way he deals with money and the way he distorts the gift that Elisha rejected it. But I want us to think, do we distort it in the way that we live? Do we distort it in the way that we walk in our lives? It reminded me of what Peter said. Peter said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. But then notice what the takeaway is, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Just as Gehazi distorted the goodness of God's gift, if we're not careful as believers, our lives can be a distortion of the gospel. So we see Gehazi's distortion. He distorts what Elisha was seeking to make clear to Naaman. But the selfishness of Gehazi was a dangerous distortion of the free grace of God. But not only do we see Gehazi's distortion, we see Gehazi's love. Gehazi's love. What does he love? Well, if we look closely at this storyline, we begin to find it. It takes a while to see it because you don't see it in chapter 4 when we come 
face to face with Gehazi as we look at the miracles of Elisha. And we looked at the miracles of Elisha in chapter 4. And in that chapter, we saw all these miracles and how they pointed to God who is powerful and compassionate. But what we find out as we continue into chapter 5 is that Gehazi has a greed problem. He has a problem with the love of money. Covetousness is the desire to have the wealth or possessions of someone else. And Gehazi is struggling here. And I want to remind you of a passage in the New Testament that really illustrates, or this story illustrates the truth of the passage in James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. If you want to see an example of James 1, 14 through 15, look no further than 2 Kings chapter 5 and the story of Gehazi's greed. And now as we look into this story, we see the development. There's things going on in the life and the heart and the mind of Gehazi that we would not be aware of if the text did not reveal it. Something is happening here. Is he in awe of the transformation of Naaman? Think about it. He's not only witnessed how in chapter 4, how God brought this woman who could have no children a son. Gehazi witnessed the miracle of Elisha being used by God to literally resurrect this little child. And now, here we are. He's just seen Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army. He's seen the work of God's cleansing to take a leper and restore him. He's seen the visible changes of how Naaman is now responding to Elisha. But is he in awe of that transformation? Is he in awe that this Syrian commander is now concerned about how to live out his faith more so than the average man or woman or leader in Israel? Is he moved to worship the Lord? What is he captivated with? He's captivated with the money Elisha is leaving on the table, so to speak. He's seeing, there he is, and now Naaman's like, hey, I want to give you this gift. I want to offer this to you as a token of my appreciation. And rather than see the truth and the beauty of Elisha rejecting such a gift, his mind and his heart is just moving. It's going. He is so tempted because now he sees that the money that he was going to give freely is now money that no one's going to take home with them to Israel. Elisha's proclaiming, go in peace. And while that's taking place, Gehazi's love is coming into full display. And everything that takes place in the story next reveals his true affections. Our lives reveal what we love. Our affections are going to be revealed in our behavior. Our behavior flows out of what we love. Our behavior flows out of what we worship. Have you ever considered that? A lot of people see behavior as just simple in the fact of you need to do this or you need to not do this. But the problem is Jesus connects our behavior with our hearts. 
Our behavior flows out of our heart. And so now he goes through this entire desire to deceive Naaman. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And notice what Jesus says in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Gehazi had a love for money. He had a heart for money. We get into verse 20. And what takes place now, see my master has spared this name in the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. And isn't it fascinating? I heard a simple explanation of verse 20, but it really is profound. The servant of God is not called to get something from somebody. They're called to give something to others, not take from them. And yet here's the servant of God and, and his covetousness has overtaken him. His lust and desire are now moving down that dangerous road towards death. And we read in verse 21, so Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? What a question is all well. What a possible opportunity for a Gehazi to revert and go the other way, to come to his senses, to heed the warning of God here. And yet we begin to see this cycle of lies. I know, I think that the one common reality about everyone in the room is we can all relate to a series of lies. Have you ever noticed how when you tell a lie, it can lead to several lies. And I mean, we all go back to stories at different times and maybe growing up, maybe in school with a teacher, maybe with a coach, maybe with friends. But what we find here is, is that now this man's loves is driving his behavior. His love for money, his desire for wealth, his covetousness now is going to literally lead him down this path. His behavior is going to follow what he worships. What he's worshiping in this story is clearly money. It's the idea of getting things that he wants for whatever material reason. And the first lie begins to happen here is all well. All is not well. <laughs> and he says it in verse 22, and he said, all is well. Lie number one, my master has sent me to say there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. So lie number two, my master has sent me to say. He hasn't done anything like that. Lie number three, this elaborate story of two young men of the sons of the prophets. And, and what's fascinating and sad and tragic, and, and if we're honest, we can see it in our own stories of looking back at times where we have been enamored with lies. Verse 23, and Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing 
and laid them on two of his servants. What's happening here? Gehazi is a con man. He urged him. Think about it. Uh, we can all relate. Has any, have you ever played this deceptive game where you act like you don't want what people are asking you to take? And you go, ah, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. And you're thinking in the back of your mind, please give it to me. Please give it to me. And what does he do? He urged him, you know, like, oh, what, what a gracious guy here this Gehazi is to take that. He wants it. He's longing for it. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. What, are, what, is it, what does he love? He loves money. I think sometimes one of the most dangerous things that can take place in a church is that we can get so used to church answers we never deal honestly with our hearts. What do you love? What captivates you? When you're laying on the bed and you can't sleep, what fills your mind? When you're driving down the road and you've got a long way to go, what occupies the space in your brain? What is it that drives you? What do you think about? What do you care about? What are you motivated by? And for this guy here, again, you wouldn't know it just from chapter 4, but what he loves, he loves money. He loves money. He's driven by that love of money. It shows up in covetousness. And the scary thing here is it keeps going. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. He's deceptive, isn't he? And he sent the men away and they departed. Verse 25, he went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Wow. I can't remember if it was Will or uh, another one of my boys, but I remember at some point when, when one of them were about three years old and they had gotten in the cupcakes. And there they are. And they're standing before us. Did you eat the cupcakes and they just as clear and as plain looked at us and said no I did not and there was icing all over their mouth this is Gehazi's icing all over his mouth he, he's so comfortable at this point in telling a lie I tell you this morning you may be listening and you're eaten up with lies and deception in your life and you play a game and you walk a line of deception. But the reality is that what people see is not really what's reality. What people see is just a distortion and a deceived way of presenting yourself before other people. And I pray that you would see that there's hope in the gospel of God's grace. Because what you're seeing here evident in the life of Gehazi is evident of the heart of man apart from the grace of Christ. What you see evident in the life in the heart of Gehazi is common to all men, and it's referred to by theologians as depravity. It's, it's, it's the mark of sin. It's the reality of sinful man apart from God. It's the reality that the human heart is not in a neutral position, but the human heart gravitates and loves the things of the world. 
And Gehazi is revealing this. And he lies bold-faced to Elisha. Now in verse 26, but he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? God had revealed to Elisha the reality of what Gehazi was up to. And now the words of judgment, the convicting words, was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? And then the voice of judgment, therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. What do you love? I want you to see something else here, though. Gehazi's proximity. I want you to think of something. Proximity, if you're in close proximity, you're near someone. Gehazi's nearness. And I want you to consider here, if there was anyone who had the blessing of seeing God work close and near, would have been Gehazi. He was near to the things of God. He witnessed the work of God. He witnessed the power of God. He witnessed how the Lord had changed Naaman. He witnessed not only at his physical appearance that changed, but the evidence of a man that was changed internally. He witnessed this woman who was able to have this child by the grace of God. He witnessed the resurrection power of God working through Elisha. He had close proximity. He was part of the miracles. He was eyewitness to all of this. Yet what we find in this story is that close proximity did not equal true fellowship with the living God. And I think if we went around the room today, we could come up with examples, couldn't we? We could come up with Judas Iscariot in the New Testament who was close to the teachings of Christ and to the miracles of Christ, yet the love of money led him to sell out his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. We could look at Demas, remember him, the co-laborer with the apostle Paul, involved in his life in ministry. We, we read about him in Philemon. We read about him in Colossians. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. But we read about the fact that even though Demas had close proximity to the things of God and even was a servant, do your best to come to me soon, Paul says at the end of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. You remember what Jesus said in the parable of the sower? In the parable of the sower, he explains the different types of soil types that receive the, the seed. And, and he speaks about the thorny soul, soil in, in verse 18 of Mark 4. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. I think as we learn from Gehazi, and we think about Romans 15, verse 4, that says, and these things are written for our instruction, 
one of the realities God teaches us through this story in 2 Kings 5 is that close proximity does not equal authentic Christianity. A person can be around the things of God. A person can be involved in a church. A person can be involved in Bible study. A person can be involved with Christian friends and yet not walk with God or know God. Close proximity here in Gehazi's life did not equal something that was authentic. And we got to be careful as we look at this. But we see what we just read at the end of chapter 5, Gehazi's judgment. Gehazi's judgment here, I pray, would be an illustration of humanity where we could feel the burden with Gehazi. I think one of the dangers is looking at a story like this and almost thinking to yourself, I'm glad I'm not like Gehazi. But if you look at Gehazi and you see the weaknesses of your own flesh and you see the propensities of your own heart and you see your need of a savior, by the grace of God, you're closer to the right response because you read about the predicament in the New Testament. Romans says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Earlier in Romans, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Gehazi's heart was so deceptive But what we have to recognize is that we carry the same predicament. Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. But when we look at Gehazi's judgment, what we find ultimately is Gehazi's need. Gehazi's need. If you don't read the story, I believe correctly, at the end of 2 Kings 5, you come away thinking Gehazi's need here is to get rid of this leprosy. But Gehazi's need is much greater. It reminds me of a passage in Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 2, if you want to turn quick, if you you want to uh, speed turn with me, go for it. Mark 2. And in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is dealing with the paralytic man. And I'll never forget in studying this passage years ago as I was going through the Gospel of Mark, and you got these four men bringing the paralytic to Jesus. They can't get near Christ because of the crowd. And lo and behold, they remove the roof. They remove the roof, and they make an opening. They lay down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, now I want you to think about this. You're, You're a paralytic. You're being brought to Jesus. Is it possible that some people within the room saw what was taking place and when Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, were like, Jesus, he's a paralytic. He's not asking for his sins to be forgiven. 
He needs his legs healed. But what does Jesus do in this story? He reminds us, even before he heals the man and the man is able to get up and walk, that the man's greatest need was not his physical ailment. The man's greatest need was his spiritual condition. What's Naaman's need in this story, or, or Gehazi's? Gehazi's need here is not to get rid of his leprosy. Gehazi's need is a cleansed heart. Gehazi's actions have led to his judgment, and Gehazi's actions have revealed a heart that's distant from God. When we look at this passage and we think about cleansing, the question again comes up, have you experienced a true cleansing? Have you been cleansed? Naaman experiences not only physical cleansing, but he experiences spiritual cleansing. And we see this marked change within Naaman, even in the opening of 2 Kings chapter 5. But what we see in Gehazi is who we are apart from the cleansing power of Christ. What we see, I heard, I heard one man that I really respect preach on this, and he called it the Gehazi syndrome. You see, there's a Gehazi syndrome that's common to all of mankind. The Gehazi syndrome is that the love of the world penetrates us so deeply that our behavior simply reflects our distance and our separation from a holy God. We look at Gehazi, we're reminded of our need of Christ. We're reminded that apart from Christ, we are lovers of the world who act out of what we love. Our behavior follows close behind. This morning, if you look at your life and you can see it clearly and you can see your behavior is sinful, one of the questions and one of the prayers to ask is, Lord, help me to see how my behavior connects to my heart. And Jesus speaks of the heart but only Christ can cleanse us. I want to encourage you today. Our hope in this passage is that Jesus offers the cleansing that we desperately need. In Titus, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And friend, Today, it's only by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit that your affections can change. It's only by the why Christianity is not a moral, ethical guide only in which we see our predicament and line up with how we need to live a better life. Christianity brings us to the realization that as sinners, we are deceived, we are estranged, we are enemies of a holy God with no help to save ourselves. But God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The hope of the gospel is that there's hope for people like Naaman and Gehazi who through the power of the Holy Spirit see their need for a Savior and by grace through faith trust in Jesus Christ. That's our hope. 
Our hope is that Christ takes us in our filth and in our sin. And this is who we are and how we live apart from this regeneration, this cleansing. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And, and before we're tempted to think, well, those people really need the Lord, we're reminded of what? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what is our response to Gehazi? Do we run to Christ? Do we look to Jesus to do a work in us? Or is it a sad situation of close proximity? Or in our love for the world, we're exposed to the truth of the answer, the truth of the the only one that can heal and yet turn away. Only Christ can change me. Only Christ can do a work in me. Only Christ can reveal my pride, reveal my greed, reveal my covetousness. Only Christ can change my heart. And maybe this morning you've never trusted in the cleansing power of Christ. And I want to invite you, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can cleanse your heart. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not out of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But it could be this morning, as a believer who's already experienced the cleansing power of Christ, you hear the story of Gehazi, and you're reminded of a heart and a life that walks in that cleansing power of Christ. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As Christians this morning, Christ calls you to put on the new man, to put off the old man. And part of the old man that we once were in Adam is a life of covetousness, a life of greed. But daily we're to be who we are in Christ. We're to live consistently with who God has made us in Christ and to put that aside. So how do we respond? Do we dismiss this? That's not for me. Poor old Gehazi. Or do we see ourselves and with humility offer a humble plea unto God? In Psalm 139, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I pray this morning we look at a guy like Gehazi and I pray rather than just think, oh, poor Gehazi can't believe that guy fell into such stupidity. I can't believe that guy was crazy. I pray that it literally would bring out a heart in us that says, God, would you guard me from fleshly deceptions? Oh, God, would you renew my heart and my mind? Oh, God, would you turn my eyes from worthless things? As Psalm 119 says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways. I tell you, I, I don't know what, what God is doing or what God is up to, but I think it's important to mention, you know, because we can pray. 
it was, we read about revivals in the past. We read about the Great Wells Revival. We read about the Great Awakening. We read about the Second Great Awakening. We read about and we hear about people that came out of the Jesus movement of the 70s. We hear about things that happened on college campuses. I'm not there. I have no idea what's happening. But I know that we can pray for them. There's a group of students that went to a chapel service in Wilmore, Kentucky on Wednesday at Asbury College. And they haven't left since Wednesday. They've been there and they've left just simply to go to their dorm and come right back. I have no idea what's happening there. I'm not wise enough to know. But we can pray that what God's doing or potentially doing on that campus would be real and authentic. And we can pray that there would be people in and on that campus that God would bring to a place of brokenness and repentance that they would experience not only a cleansed heart, but a changed, transformed perspective. And I, and I pray that it wouldn't just be a prayer for what is happening in Wilmore, Kentucky, but that we would pray, God, would, would you do a revival in, in, in our church, in our community? God, would you do a revival in our land? Would you pray that the Lord would work? And I tell you, it begins as the Holy Spirit speaks to our own hearts and reveals to us the Gehazi in all of us and reveals to us in brokenness and in humility our need for the cleansing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, may start with us and may we Look, and I'm going to read to you a section of Scripture here, and I'm going to close with this. And I want you to hear the words of Paul in light of what we've read. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we see Gehazi's distortion, his love, his proximity, his judgment, his need. And I pray today we would turn to the cleansing power of Christ. Would you bow your head with me? God, I pray you'd guard our hearts from the deception of Gehazi. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just play games with you. I pray, Lord, we would just not have an appearance of godliness that's solely external. But, oh, Lord, I pray as we have been exposed to this story of Elisha and Naaman and your cleansing power, I pray, Lord, it would help us to better understand the nature of the human heart, the nature of our own depraved way. And I pray it would help us come face to face with the miracle and the power of the cleansing blood of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, oh God, that if there's people in this room that have never been cleansed, I pray today would be their day of salvation. I pray that by grace through faith, they would trust and depend on the work of your precious son who gave his life for us. I pray, oh God, for those who have been cleansed, I pray, Lord, that today you would use this passage of Gehazi in the lives of just our sanctification, God. I pray that you would use it to purify your people. I pray that we'd be reminded to put aside these sins that we read about. Lord, that we'd be reminded of how significant and important it is for our minds to be renewed and our hearts to walk in submission to you. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, God, for the sobering reminder. I pray that you be glorified in our response. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me in these last few moments, Charlie's going to be.